Thank you. Good evening. Why don't you open your Bibles to Psalm 46? Psalm 46, beginning uh, at the little title there, it says, uh, To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah, a song for Alamoth. And then verse 1, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea. Though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, Selah. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you so much, Lord, for the works that you have done on behalf of your people, of the church, Lord of the people who are called by your name, Lord, that you came and stood for us, Lord, taking our place, uh, being judged as guilty uh, because of our sin, Lord, and you stood uh, in our place, interceding on our behalf, taking our sin upon yourself and died on the cross for us, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you that you did not just leave it there, but after you were buried and then resurrected, Lord, you came uh, to your church, Lord, to your disciples. You showed the proof of the work that you had done, Lord, and we have that written in your word, Lord, and they saw you ascend to heaven, Lord, where your word tells us you intercede on our behalf, Lord. You truly are our salvation, Father. The works that you have done, we have written before us. And we pray as we study your word, as we look at these things tonight, as we consider you being our strength, our refuge, our help, Lord, that we would not forget, Lord, how you've dealt with us personally, how you've worked in our lives personally, individually. Lord, I pray that you would bless tonight, you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit. In your name, amen. So, for the introduction here, the title of this psalm, this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were a family of Levites. Um, Levites, you know, they were chosen by the Lord to serve before him in the tabernacle and the temple. Um, and, and this psalm uh, was written by this family, uh, uh the sons of Korah, and you'll see that throughout the scriptures, the psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, and it's written to the chief musician, as you see throughout many of the scriptures, uh, the psalms here. And it says it's a song for Alamoth. Um, and that word song literally means it's supposed to be sung. It's not just that word psalm, but it, it is a, a song um, that is meant to be sung out loud. Um, and then Alamoth, uh, they believe that it's speaking of uh, virgins or maidens. And, and there's two schools of thought. One is that it was meant to be sung by, by young women or it was 
making more of a musical note in that it would be in kind of a higher pitch and a higher melody and something along those lines. You'll see that throughout some of these songs and these psalms in the scriptures of these notes where these were actually things that were sung. Um, and that's why, uh, as I was reading through uh, Psalm 46, when we get to that little part that is Selah, um, most believe that that is a, a pause or a, a momentary rest or stop, either in the music or just in the message of the psalm, a, a, a moment to contemplate, to meditate upon what's been shared, and then to move on to the next step. So um, this is a song that was sung. I believe this is grouped together with Psalm 44 through 49, um, speaking of the Messiah um, of his salvation that he will ultimately bring about for Israel. But it also has historic, uh, it, as far as in the, the history of the people of Israel, a historic weight as well. There are two um, kind of backgrounds that Bible scholars say that this psalm is. We don't really know exactly when it was written, but you have... In uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you guys don't need to turn there, but the Moabites and the Ammonites were some of the people groups around Israel. And they came to make war against Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat, uh, who was king in Jerusalem at that time. This was the same time as Ahab was ruler in Israel, the northern kingdom. So they come against uh, Jerusalem and Jehoshaphat gathers the people together and they pray to the Lord and they ask the Lord to deliver them. Well, as this massive host of armies is surrounding Jerusalem, they go through the night. Oh, I'm sorry, that's a different one, but uh, that's the other one. Let me say, but uh, the Lord sends them out. That's right. The Lord puts, tells them to go out before these armies. And rather than taking up arms against them, he tells them to go out in front of them and sing. And they essentially what they sing is praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And as they're singing this uh, before these armies, they start fighting one another. And essentially the armies that gathered against uh, Israel at that time destroy each other without Israel having to pick up a weapon at all. So we have that miraculous salvation that the Lord has done. And as we've read Psalm 46, we see that matches. The other one that I started to get confused for you guys is Isaiah 37. Um, it talks about when Sennacherib, who is the Assyrian king, he comes up against Israel when Hezekiah is king there. Um, and remember Hezekiah, he was that uh, king who was righteous, um, and he prayed to the Lord uh, to deliver Jerusalem from Sennacherib. It's all recorded there in Isaiah. Um, and uh, after the prayers of Hezekiah and the prayer of the people, the Lord sends a destroying angel, angel that completely slaughters the armies around Israel. So you have those two that could be the backdrop to this psalm. Uh, so historically, you have maybe that this fits in there, and we see some of these pieces uh, can fall into line with that. But I think, uh, at least for us, more importantly, what we see is that this looks forward. Uh, to prophetic events that will take place as, as we're going to see because the things that uh, the sons of Korah write about and describe here did not ever happen in Jerusalem or Israel and as in all of these things taking place at the time if you were to look at this literally. So, But let's dive in. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. That refuge is uh, a shelter. It's, it's what we think of. It's, it's a place to which someone who is defenseless flees. Uh, it can also be uh, translated as a fortress. God is our fortress. Uh, he is our place where we go. Uh, it is written in the scriptures about the coney or the, the uh, rabbit, essentially. It's a type of, of rodent like a rabbit. How it's uh, weak, has no defenses. I mean, you, we see lots of bunnies around here on the island, right? They have no defenses against anything except for to run and hide. The scriptures say that they're defenseless, they're a weak people, but then they go and they make their home in, in the rocks. And the rocks are their shelter and their defense is where they run to. And that's the same picture we have here. 
God is our refuge. He's our fortress and our strength. The very fact that we claim him as our refuge is also a statement about our strength, that we can't defend ourselves, that, that we need him as our fortress, as our protection, as our shelter, as our place to run to. Martin Luther, this was his favorite psalm, and in fact, he wrote that famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing, based upon this psalm. Uh, And it's that same idea. The Lord is this mighty fortress for us. He's a, a refuge, a stronghold, and strength. He is our strength. We have no strength apart from him. Uh, When we recognize God as being our refuge, we have to recognize that we're helpless apart from him. We we have no ability to protect ourselves. Uh, That's very clear. As As we walk with the Lord, as we go through our lives, we have all of these things that struggle against us as Christians. We have our flesh. Uh, if you've placed your faith in the Lord, you know that there's no, there's no getting away from sin in, in, your, in your flesh and, and all of those things apart from the Lord. There's no escape from those things apart from the Lord. We have the enemy of the world around us. Uh, and we can stand up and we can say, I'm going to take up my gun or my sword or, or my weapon against the attacks that come against us. But truly, uh, defending ourselves physically means nothing. Uh, the true need that we have is our spiritual salvation and our spiritual refuge in God is that for us and recognizing that we are helpless before him. We flee to him as our strength, as our shelter. And being our strength, uh, he only becomes our strength when we recognize our weakness. When we recognize him, you remember Paul, he wrote in 2 Corinthians 12, he was talking about this thorn in the flesh that he had, where he struggled with this, and and he would pray to the Lord and asking the Lord to remove this from him. He called it a messenger of Satan that tormented Saul or Paul. Um, And and as he's praying, he says, the Lord answers in uh, verse 9, it says, and he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul writes, he says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, in my weaknesses, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong, is what? Paul writes, and that can be the same for us, is that recognition that we can't do it. We can't accomplish it. God is our strength. He is our refuge. He's our strength. We only only are able to bear fruit as Christians in walking with him when we abide in him, when we trust in him, when we're relying on him. He's given us his Holy Spirit to produce those things in us, to work on our behalf. God is our refuge and strength. It says a very present help in trouble. That word very present, it means abundantly available. He's everywhere we turn. When we have need of him, he is there. He's abundantly available. He's there. Uh, Psalm 34 verse 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and save such as have a contrite spirit. How do we recognize that the Lord is near? By being humble, by having this broken heart, a contrite spirit, recognizing our need for him, our sin, our condition to be humble before him. And he's near, he's there, he's abundantly available to help us when we're in that place. The word says, a a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering flax he will not quench. When we're in that place of humility, of brokenness, to have a contrite heart, the Lord is near. And he's near to help us. The Lord is near to all who call upon him in truth. Psalm 145 verse 18 says. He's near, abundantly available to help when we sincerely seek him. The word says that those who come to 
God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When we seek him sincerely, when he's not just that second option that we have, the plan B, but when he is the one that we diligently seek for our help, for our refuge, for our strength, when we sincerely seek him. Psalm 85 verse 9 it says, His salvation is near to those who fear Him. So His abundant, present, available help is there for us when we fear Him, when we have that reverent awe, that fear for Him, that, that respect for His authority, His justice, His righteousness, His very character, His power, His ability to judge, His ability to forgive, all of those things, when we recognize him, when we fear him, he is near to us. His salvation is near to us. It's interesting, Isaiah 55, verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. There's a time when the Lord is near. We're told in the scriptures, of course, today is the day of salvation. The Lord is near when we respond to him. There are many times in our lives that we sit and, and we say, where are you, Lord? Why are you not working? Why are you not bringing this to pass? Why, why am I going through these things? I've been praying. I've been crying out to you. I've trusted into you. Where are you, Lord? And the Lord is there and available to us all the time. And then our response in those times, the Lord if he's not answering, it should be just a, 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 an answer of faith where we can go to Psalms like Psalm 46 and we say, God, you are my strength. You're my refuge. You're my very present help in trouble. You are there. And it's falling back on him and trusting and waiting in him. The thing about a, a refuge, a fortress, a, a, what God has described as there is he doesn't move. He's there. It's a, it's a place that stays and remains the same. And when he's not near, it's because we've gone away. It says we run and flee back to him. We go to him as our refuge and our strength. He's there to help us. He is there to protect us, to be that for us. It's beautiful. Verse 2, so we have the reason here. God, he's our refuge, our strength. He is this. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, verse 2, we will not fear. A recognition of God's character, of who he is, of what he's done for us, gives us the, the peace that we so very often, all the time, need from him, is a recognition of him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, those many times where we grow anxious, when we're fearful, when, when we are overwhelmed, uh, it's because we've lost perspective about who the Lord is and what he's done for us. It, it, it comes down to even the most simple things in our lives where, <coughs> excuse me, we need him, where we need him to pull through on our behalf. And when we are frustrated with the situations that we're faced and we feel like he's not answering, again, if we turn our hearts and our minds to him, if we look to him, then he, he becomes that peace for us when we rest in him and we trust in him to be reminded of what he's done on our behalf. He's saved us from our sin if we've placed our faith in him. He's dealt with death. He's dealt with the wages of our sin. And if we are honest, as we look back at our lives, there are so many things that he's done for us on our behalf that he's saved us from. And we look back at those things and, and we say, God, you have been my refuge. You've been my strength. You've been my help in the past. You can be and are those things for me here and now. It's so important for us to have that, that perspective and that remembering, that reminding if we're not in the word of God, then we often forget those things. Because the word of God is what steers our minds and, and our thoughts and our hearts back towards the Lord and to who he is, who his character is, and what he's done for us. Reminds us of those things. 
I hope you take notes in your Bible, or at least have a journal maybe that you write things down and when the Lord speaks to you on. As I've been studying through Psalms, every time I'm going uh, to a different Psalm, I get out, I have probably five or six different Bibles I have on my bookshelf that I've had over the years that I have different notes in and little dates written down and things where, where like Dan shared last week, uh, there were specific things in my life that the Lord was speaking to me at a point through this psalm. And as I'm opening those, those pages of my Bible and I'm seeing the dates written down in little notes, and then I read it and I say, oh yes, I remember what the Lord did, how the Lord spoke to me, the comfort He gave to me in those times. And it's a comfort and an assurance for me as I go forward and I look at the present circumstances that I'm in right now. A reminder of who God is and His very character. And that's what we have in His Word. And to be reminded of those things, then we can say, Therefore, we will not fear. Verse 2 continues on and it says, Even though the earth be removed... Even though the mountains be carried into the midst or the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Uh, One of the commentators I read uh, said that this uh, is picturing a reversal of what the Lord did in creating the earth. If you see, as he he created the waters and he, he called the earth to be separated and come out of the waters and dry land appears and he raises up the mountains and, and we see this complete destruction and destroying the, the earth being removed, the mountains carried into the midst of the sea, the waters roaring and are troubled, the mountains shake with the swelling of the sea, all of this ca- catastrophic judgment. And, and the psalmist is saying, we're not going to fear. doesn't matter. I mean, this. imagine the entire earth going through this. We, we have it written in the scriptures about this taking place. Of course, we have the, the flood that, that happened in Genesis, where you see the entire earth flooded over uh, with the waters that destroyed all people, all living creatures on the earth, except for those in the ark. And imagine standing... <laughs> There on a mountaintop and, and watching these things take place and, and the destruction that happened. But then we have in, in uh, the book of Revelation and the other prophetic books in the scriptures, what's going to happen is that the earth will have these catastrophic changes that are going to take place. Where mountains will fall into the sea, where, where the earth will be removed, where the waters will rise up, where there will be just these catastrophic changes that take place. And despite any of those things, despite things that are completely out of our control, we can stop and say, God is our refuge. He's our strength. He's a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. We can stop and say those things. We will not fear. The character of the Lord, he's the basis of our peace. He's the reason why. 2 Timothy 1.7, you guys know this verse, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. The Lord has not given us a spirit of fear. We as believers, as Christians, He's given us His Holy Spirit to be that peace, that refuge, that strength, that present help in our hearts as believers, as we rest and trust in Him. And because of that, we do not have to fear. And in in fact, on the opposite side of this, we have what? Power, love, and a sound mind are what the Lord has given us. Through all the turmoil around us, we can and should have peace. We're told over and over in the scriptures uh, to cast our cares upon the Lord, cast our burdens upon the Lord, be anxious for nothing. We're, we're told to not fear. And it's, again, not because of anything around us, any circumstances, any power that we have, any strength that we have, but it's because of His character that we can stand and we can say, we will not fear. I love what Charles Spurgeon, he wrote about this. He says, we are in no hurry so he's picturing the, 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 the singer here 
singing this song as the earth is being removed, the mountains are carried in the midst of the sea, the waters are roaring uh, and troubled, the mountains are shaking. He says, we're in no hurry, but we can sit us down and wait while the earth dissolves, mountains rock and oceans roar. Ours is not the headlong rashness with which passes for courage. We can calmly confront the danger and meditate upon terror dwelling on its separate items and united forces. The pause is not an exclamation of dismay, but merely a rest in music. We do not suspend our song in alarm, but tune our harps again with deliberation amidst the tumult of the storm. It's this, it's this calm rest, praising the Lord. You see the troubles around us, and we turn our hearts to the Lord. And we say, Lord, you're our refuge and our strength. You know, the world we live in, it, it's getting crazier and crazier. There was a, a young man just arrested, if you guys didn't see it, in Wisconsin um, for preaching the gospel on a public sidewalk, protected by, you know, his rights of free speech. Um, and it, it was at a uh, some LGBT something or drag queen type of event or something. But he was on the sidewalk. He was preaching the gospel. He was not not being violent or anything. And, and he had his amplifier and his microphone taken away forcibly by the police, and he was arrested. Young kid in our very nation, right? Opposition there. Uh, there is turmoil throughout the world uh we see uh in south africa it's they're being ripped apart um by uh racial tensions in south africa right now uh they're uh you know they existed for so long with with some segregation and and some some wrong racial things going on where the uh, African people were were seen as minority groups, and then the the Dutch and the the English uh, people who had been there were seen as a kind of a higher class, and that happened for a long time. Then that switched, you know, with Nelson Mandela and, and the end of apartheid and all of that taking place. Right. Well, now they've gone to the other extreme, where they have stadiums full of people chanting kill the boar, which is a white person, term for white person, kill the farmer. And they're going out and they have all these farmers that, that there's just 79-year-old farmer was ripped out of his house on his farm, tortured, beaten with a pipe, killed. His wife was assaulted. And this is happening over and over there in, in, in South Africa. Niger, they're talking about evacuating people. All the European nations are saying they need to evacuate people out of Niger because of what's happening. Uh, and, and so we have the world is going crazy. And, and it's not just going crazy for everyone else. We see an intense increase in persecution against Christians and against believers. <laughs> We've talked about it a lot here. And again, not to make anyone fear but for us to be aware and know that this is the way the world is going right now. We pray and hope, and I believe the Lord is coming back soon for his church, but we don't know how long he will tarry, and we have no promise that we are exempt from tribulation, right, from persecution. In fact, we're promised those things. So right now what we have is we're not facing those extreme persecutions that we see across the world, but we need to have it settled in our heart and say, like the psalmist says, even though the earth be removed, even though these things happen, if this comes, God is still my strength. He's my refuge. He's my present help to make that decision now, to trust in him, to walk in him. If we get overwhelmed by all the little things, what is it going to be like when things get worse? We need to have a settled heart with the Lord to run to him. How do we get that settled heart? It's by trying him, by testing him, by walking with him, by going to him. We rip ourselves off when we hold on to anxiety, when we hang on to fear, 
when we say, I'm going to just deal with this. I need to figure out how to get around this problem. I need to, I need to do this work to make sure that, that I figure all of this out. Well, you know, uh, I, I'm going to lose my job. Well, now I need to go and find this job and find that job and go out and, and maybe I'll have three jobs and we'll take care of this. Or, you know, we have these bills I can't pay and all of these things. And instead of sitting back and saying, Lord, I need you to provide for me. I can't do this on my own. We sit there and we strive and we struggle and we fight and we do these things. And then it all falls apart. And then we end up saying, Lord, why didn't you help me? And we never learn to trust in him and to walk in him. You know, dealing with family members that are going through things or, you know, you have someone who's off in the world or, or maybe they were walking with the Lord at one time and they've gone away from him. Is it your place to sit there and to force them to make them do what, make the right decisions and to fight with them and to constantly be, be, uh, be picking on all of the individual little decisions that they're making against the Lord or is it for you to trust in the Lord, to pray for them, share the gospel and love with them to spend time in prayer on your knees before the Lord, interceding on their behalf, to do those things, to, to stand with him, with the Lord, and to pray for them, to rest in him. It's the Lord who changes the heart of a man, changes the heart of a woman. It's not through our words or through the things that we do. It's through the Lord and his spirit. Now, the Lord calls us to stand up and to do certain things. I'm not saying that, that you just sit back, cross your arms, say, well, I'll pray for you, right? But at the same time, it's not us striving. It's us trusting, resting in the Lord to work these things out, to pray, to trust in him, to run to him as our refuge and our strength. And we have that pause, that selah, that Charles Spurgeon was talking about. Retuning our harps, okay, it's time to sing some more praises of the Lord. Verse 4, beautiful. There is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. It's beautiful. Dan talked about it a few weeks ago, talking about living water. We have throughout the scriptures this picture of the living water that the Lord is and the Lord gives to us that brings peace, that brings gladness. This, this beautiful picture. Israel, or Jerusalem, uh, is unique in, in many of the ancient cities of the world in that there was no real river in Jerusalem. Most of the time, cities like that were founded upon a water source, a clean water source. And there really was nothing. There were a few springs like Shiloh um, and uh, and uh, Gihon Spring and those around there, but no real true river. Uh, and uh, the beautiful thing about this whole text, if it, if it has anything to do with Hezekiah and that time where Sennacherib was surrounding Jerusalem, if you, if you read that story, you see that um, they were fearful of being sieged where they were surrounded and had their supplies cut off. So Hezekiah, he realized they had no water in that city. If they were to come and be sieged, it would be very easy to cut off the water supply. So they secretly dug tunnels out to a spring outside the city that then fed fresh water into the city, covered over that spring so that when the Assyrians came, they, they didn't know where their water source was. So then their city could be sieged and yet they were fed with clean water the entire time. They, their supplies were never cut off. And, and you have some of that here, but this is even more so. We see, you know, that, that, that could be what they're talking about. But pointing forward, what do we see? This river, whose streams shall make glad the city of God, is the, the uh, river is God himself. It's God the Father. Jeremiah 2.13, it says, For my people have committed two evils, speaking of Israel. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, that's one evil, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's the second one. They were going after false gods, is what Jeremiah was writing about. But the Lord himself, he says, they've forsaken me, 
the fountain of living waters. God himself is that fountain of living waters, the river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. We see that in our uh, psalm here in verse 5, where it says, God is in the midst of her. He is that stream, that source of life, life-giving water. Not only is it God the Father, but it is God the Son. Zechariah 13, verse 1, it says, In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanness. And it's speaking of the coming of the Messiah. God the Son, Jesus himself, is the fountain that's opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse and deal with and heal sin and uncleanness is what he's writing there. And then, uh, uh, not only is he God the Father, the river is God the Father, God the Son, but also God the Spirit. John 7, you know it. um, Verse 38 says, this is Jesus speaking, He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, But Whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The Holy Spirit given to the believer. This river, there is a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have God the Father. We have God the Son. He's given himself to us to be with us, to be in us, to be in our midst, and he is the source of life. That's what Jesus was was, uh, talking about as he talked about abiding in his word, being his disciples, abiding in him as the vine, producing fruit, uh, uh, of trusting in him, uh, of relying on him. It's a river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. Outside is the turmoil. Outside, the earth is being removed, the mountains carried into the midst of the sea, the waters are roaring and troubled, the mountains are shaking, but inside, the calm river of life, making glad the city of God. If you notice here, uh, the city of God we know is Jerusalem, but I thought it was interesting in verse 4, it says, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High, not the temple. The tabernacle was never in Jerusalem. I believe that this is pointing forward to Jesus here. Jesus is the tabernacle, the tent, the dwelling place of the Most High. God is there. A river whose stream shall make glad the city of God. And it says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Uh, in Deuteronomy 23 we see that God dwelt in the midst of the people of Israel in the wilderness. It says in verse 14, For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. For the people of Israel, they had that historically. They saw the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke. They saw the Lord, his presence there with them. He was in their midst then. He dwelt in the midst of the people in the land. Uh, he was there with them uh, in First Kings. It talks about that, uh, where, where the Lord's glory, the cloud of the glory of the Lord came into the temple as Solomon was dedicating it, and the Lord's presence was there in the temple. But the presence of the Lord did not always remain there in Jerusalem. Remain there with the people. In fact, in Ezekiel 10, we read that as the people rebelled against the Lord and gave themselves over to idolatry, that the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and left the temple and was not there again. And uh, that was a very sad day for Israel, but it it was because of their rebellion. But he was in the midst of them. We're told in Matthew uh, 18, you guys know this verse, very famous verse, for where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. We have the promise that for us in the church, he is there with us. He in the, is in the midst of us to give us that peace, 
to make us glad. Revelation 2, in fact, also pictures that as he walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, right? He's in the midst of the churches there. But prophetically pointing forward, we see physically that the Lord will return. His very presence will come to Jerusalem where he will reign as king and his presence will be there. Where, where he will be in the midst of Jerusalem again and she shall not be moved. Their armies will come against her, uh, though all of the things that will, the ca- uh, catastrophes and all the things taking place around, and Jerusalem will not be moved because the Lord is there in his city. He is there as king. Zechariah, Hosea, Ze- uh, Zephaniah, Joel, Daniel, they all talk about Jesus returning physically to Jerusalem to reign as king and his presence, him being there in the midst of them. And that moment as he steps foot in Jerusalem, as he's there and shows his power for who he is, as he deals with the Antichrist, as he deals with the armies that have come against uh, the Lord and against his people, as he deals with all of them, the scriptures say, all the prophets say, then the world will know that he is God. Then they will know that he is God. For the outside, for those that come against the Lord's people and against the Lord, there's the awesome judgment that stops their mouths, that causes them to stop and to say and to see and know that He is God. But for those of us who trust in Him, we have this this constant abiding presence of the Lord, the river whose streams make glad the city of God, where we can rest in Him. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. If we trust in the Lord, if we rest in Him, if we walk in Him, if we, we are, are, are called by His name, if we know and see what He's done for us, we can stand and we can say we'll not be moved. We have the peace that makes us glad. We have the holiness and the righteousness of the Lord. We have all the things that we need He has given to us by His very presence by who he is, his very character. I love uh, that next part of verse 5. It says, God shall help her just at the break of dawn. So it, again, it harkens back to that time with Hezekiah where it was overnight that the angel of the Lord went and, and struck the armies of uh, Sennacherib and the Assyrians and, and killed them and delivered Jerusalem uh, from that siege and uh, it's uh, beautiful as we even see going on prophetically. We see uh, that it's the seven-year tribulation that comes upon the earth where the Lord deals with Israel, deals with uh, Israel and their rebellion. Uh, the Lord deals with a world that has rejected him and all of the things that are taking place. And the Lord allows the Antichrist to come on the scene. The Lord allows the persecutions that are taking place and the the judgment that's coming and all of those things that take place. But just at the very end, he comes and he delivers. He saves his people. He steps forth. He's the one who comes from Basra, whose robes are dipped in blood because of the judgment, the defense, his his standing strong and firm at just at the break of dawn. Uh, he's called the morning star, right? The bright and shining morning star. Just at the break of dawn, the help when it is most needed. At the darkest hour, he comes and breaks through and saves. And that is our Lord. That is our Father. That is God. That's who he is and what he's done. Verse 6, it says, The nations raged, the kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice, the earth melted what power that is i don't know if you've seen there there's this event that took place i can't remember it off the top of my head but in russia um i think it was early 1900s maybe a little bit before that some sort of like an asteroid or a comet or something like that this giant blast no one really knows exactly what happened but took place over the tundra in russia and you could go there and see the trees just completely blasted, flattened out. Um, and, uh, of course, uh, we know as we've looked at history, 
the, the horrific things that took place um, as uh, America dropped the bombs on Japan and, and how that took place. This is even more catastrophic and even greater than all of that. The nations, they're raging, reminds me of Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage, right? The kingdoms were moved, but all the Lord has to do, he utters his voice and the earth is melted. It's just dissolved. The earth is, is melted. That's the power of the Lord, the power of his word. He created the universe by the word of his mouth. And he can destroy it by the word of his mouth. It, in fact, it, it's, we sang about it. It's by his word he holds all things together. right? It's him who holds everyone, everything together. How awesome and how powerful he is. And, you know, the very culmination of the enemies of the Lord that we read about as we look at the book of Revelation and the end times and those things that take place where the church is removed and the world is finally free or so they think to, to create this utopian society in the way they want it to. To have all the technological advances of, of the history of mankind on the earth to have all of these things and the height of humanity and all of this and they come and gather against the Lord and it's just a word and they're done and that's how awesome and powerful our God is we need to step back and we look at that and we say as we face the problems in our life that's how powerful and awesome our God is he can deal with it, it, it makes everything that we face in our lives like nothing when we, when we consider the power of the Lord and what he can do, what he has accomplished, what he will accomplish, what he's promised, and what he can do. We step back and we say our God is powerful. He has all of this in his hands. There is nothing he cannot do, he cannot deal with. And that's why verse 7 comes in. It's beautiful. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is is our refuge. There are some commentators that actually believe that this should this there this was also included between verse 3 and 4, which would be why there's that selah there and this constant refrain. Either way it's here twice um, so that's what we have here. But it's beautiful because we see the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, the I am of hosts speaking of an, the angelic hosts, right? The the army of the Lord the, 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 the powerful supernatural beings that, that exist around us. He is their Lord. He is Lord over them. The Lord of hosts. He's with us. He's with us. The powerful creator of the universe. The commander of the heavenly armies is with us. But not only that. He's the God of Jacob. The Elohim of Jacob. It, it's not the God of Israel. It's the God of Jacob. Who is Jacob? Jacob, heel catcher, supplanter, deceiver, right? Put on animal skin on his arms so he could smell and feel like his brother and steal the birthright away from him. Jacob, who fled from his brother's wrath and went out to his uncles. And while he was there, as he's trying to marry his daughter, ends up with two wives, uh, he... He is slowly sucking the wealth away from his uncle through deceit <laughs> as he's there. Jacob, the one who wrestled with God. The Lord of hosts, he's high above. He's the commander of the armies that we have no power, no strength to deal with. He, he, he is over them, but he's also the God of Jacob. Who dealt with Jacob as with a man. Who, who, who walked with him, who wrestled with him, the God of Jacob. He is the God who does not, uh, is no respecter of persons. Right? He is the God who knows our very character, knows who we are, knows what we struggle with, knows how we are deceivers, how, 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 how we are greedy. He knows our very nature. But if we've run to him, he is with us, and he's our refuge. And that's beautiful. We can trust in him. It's the, the character, the awesome power of God. But his, his personal, intimate, 
care and desire to know us and to, and, and to, to love us and to walk with us individually and personally. He is our refuge that we can run to and we can trust in. The Lord of hosts and the God of Jacob. Verse 8, it steps in and says, Come, behold the works of the Lord. We see and we look around as his followers, as believers in him, and say these are beautiful works the Lord has wrought for us. Salvation, right? His grace upon us, his mercy towards us, his love for us. But this is not what the psalmist is writing about here. He says, come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. For those who fight against the Lord on the outside, it's judgment. For us on the inside too, we can see and we can trust and know he's our protector. How powerful and awesome he is, the desolations that he has made. It's not us rejoicing in the destruction and all of these things, but it's us rejoicing in God's character. And who he is, his power, and his love for us is demonstrated in his protection of his people. And his dealing and his judging with sin. He's made desolations in the earth. He is powerful. Come behold the works of the Lord who has made desolations in the earth. In verse 9 it says, he makes wars to cease, uh, cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. You know... We know it and we've seen it for a long time, this push for peace in the earth, right? The UN was established to bring peace in the earth. Um, I think it's done exactly the opposite, personally. Uh, but, you know, it's it's that kind of cliche thing you always heard about, uh, about those beauty pageants. You know, someone get up and that was the thing they would talk about, how they would bring peace to the world, Right was was the 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 selling point of their speech that they would make. Uh, everybody wants to see peace. In fact, at the UN, they have Isaiah two four written on the side of the building. There it talks about beating their swords into plowshares and, and 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 turning these things. And that was their mission to bring this about. But we see, mankind cannot bring about any sort of peace on the earth. Because it's sinful. It's wicked. The only peace that truly, truly will come was when the Lord judges wickedness on the earth. He is the prince of peace, the originator of peace. Uh, Jesus himself, like we looked at on Sunday, he did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Speaking of the division as there's walking with him and, and, and being devoted to him and the opposition against him that we'll see will all of those take place but the Lord as he comes how does he bring about peace on the earth he brings about peace by dealing with those who will not have any peace whatsoever they don't want peace they they there's this opposition to him there's the peace that God brings now that we have access to the streams that make glad the city of God, that peace that we have with him where our sin is dealt with and all of those things. But peace on the earth earth will not exist until Jesus comes back and he deals in righteousness with the world. And it's in those desolations that he makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, burns the chariot in fire. That's a picture of making it so that it will not take place anymore. That was a practice in the ancient times where they would destroy the weapons of a defeated army so they could not rise up against them and start wars over. And that's what the Lord is saying. He's making a final end of those who would fight against him. He makes wars to cease. That is what the Lord is and will do, and we can trust him for it. And again, that's where we step back and we say we see all these crazy things happening in the world around us. We don't know how long we're going to be here. We don't know what we're going to see, what we're going to go through. But we can, because we have his word and we have his spirit, we can look forward to him coming and making an end of all these things. Judging the wickedness. Ending these things in his right timing. We don't know his ways. They're higher than ours. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We don't understand them. But yet we can trust and know that he is good. He is our refuge. He is our strength. He's our present help in trouble. And then we come to verse 10. 
says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. There's a strange thing that's happened today with this verse, specifically this verse. And it's been completely ripped out of context. You see it all across the internet. You can see it on shirts and at secular stores and, and you know memes on the internet and all these little things that you can see and stickers you can buy. Be still, be still, be still, right? And, and what the world is saying is be still, empty your mind. Just step back, just let go, be still. But when we look at this in context, what is the Lord saying here? He's saying, be still. In the midst of the wars, the raging, the kingdoms coming against him, the, the desolations, the, he's saying to the enemies of the Lord, be still, stop. I am God, is what he's saying. Be still, stop. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's a show of the Lord's strength. Where he's saying, be still, cease from striving, stop fighting, is what the Lord is saying. Be still. It's a message for us, and it's a message for those on the outside. For the enemies of the Lord, it's a response from the Lord of hosts. Where Psalm 2, verse 12, it says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. But it's also a response for us as the people of God, a response to the persecution that we can and will face. Where uh, Psalm 37 verse 7 says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger. Be still from anger, is what it's saying. And forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. Judgment's coming. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. That promise. And it's also a response for the people of God from the God of Jacob. Lamentations 3 verse 28 through 29, it says, uh, Let him sit alone and keep silent. Speaking of those who trust in the Lord. Let him sit alone and keep silent. Because God has laid it on him. Sometimes there are things in our life where we, we have those difficulties and trials and circumstances in our life where the Lord is allowing consequences, is allowing his chastisement upon us. Or maybe it's not even chastisement. Maybe it's just the Lord is wanting to teach us to trust in him. And we, we see here in Lamentations, Jeremiah writing says, Let him sit alone. Keep silent. Don't rail against the Lord. Don't get angry. Sit alone. Keep silent. Because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. That's what he says. Lamentations 3 is where that is. And then Ecclesiastes 5.2. It says, Do not be rash with your mouth. Let not your heart utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven and you on earth. Therefore let your words be few. We stand before the God who created the universe, who judged it with the floods in Noah's time, who will judge it with fire at the end of times. We, we stand before him, and we need to be silent before him, to be still, to not fret, to not be angry, to not rail against the things going on in front of us, but it's also for the enemies of God to see and be warned. He is God and he will deal with them. Like Psalm 2 says, be still and know that I am God. It's not this new age, sit back and meditate, empty your mind and let God fill you and do all of these things. It's none of that. It's be humble. It's, it's, it's almost the Lord saying, I don't mean to be crass or rude, but shut up, I'm God. Be still. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. It's the Lord. He, he is the one who defends. He ultimately has the last say. He has the victory. 
He has it now in Christ, and we just wait and look forward for his return, where he will have it physically on the earth that we will see. And then we have the repeat there, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. God is dishonored when we don't consider his power to judge sin. We dishonor him. When, when we continue in our sin and we don't listen to him and, and, and heed his warnings, he's dishonored when we don't consider that he is righteous. He's also dishonored when we don't consider his power to forgive sin. When we don't believe him for the mercy and grace that he's given to us, who he is. There's that, du- that dual nature that we see, the Lord of hosts and the God of, Nat- of Jacob. He's the Lord of hosts, powerful, strong to judge, but he's also the God of Jacob, the one who loves us, who, who's intimately concerned with us. And he, he, he knows our shortcomings and has chosen to forgive us and to love us. That is our God, our, the, the one who we trust in, who is our refuge and our strength, our very present help in trouble. Charles Wesley is that, that one of the brothers, the Wesley brothers, who uh, what the Lord used to bring about the, the Methodist church and the movement of God, that all these revivals that took place in his time. Um, as he was dying, uh, he had this long contracted illness, and you can read um, a man who kind of wrote the, a journal of his last days. One of his uh, last things that he said as he could barely speak Uh, He said, the best of all is God is with us. The best of all is God is with us. And that is what we have is this understanding. If we've placed our faith in him, God is with us. He's our defense. He's our refuge. He will deal with the persecution, with the difficulties, with all those things outside of us. But he's also God with us. He's our strength, our help. He's our, our peace that makes us glad, the streams that make glad the city of God. He's in the midst of us, and he loves us, and he cares for us. The best of all is, the answer of all those problems is God is with us. That's his name, remember? In Isaiah, he's called Emmanuel, God with us. And that, that is who the Lord is. So let's pray.